The country has just suffered a civil war. Households are divided, as is the nation. One of the last generations of men and women born into slavery rise an industrious group of individuals who'd grow to become the first black self-made millionaires. One book tells their story. The book, Black Fortunes. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! This is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. My dear, beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous friend, Alexis, how are you today? Um, I think I'm doing all right. Gorgeous. <laughs> Early mornings. Yeah, but the night. sun's out, right? I was really confused. I thought when the clock went back. It would be darker longer in the morning. So when I awoke to sunrise at 6 a.m., you hear me? Happy dancing in the sheets. Yes. I was thrilled. Yeah. That helps so, me get out of bed. For sure. That's when we need it. So I get it. I get it. I thought when we left work, it would be more light and I don't need that. Yeah. No. At <laughs> night, it's going to be dark. Okay. All right. Like at four, unfortunately. So yeah, that's the situation. That's uh, our it is situation what it is. right now. So did you what en- did you do this week, sis? Well, we had a week off, so I really enjoyed it. I didn't even look at a book. I covered my bookshelf so I wouldn't have to look at those books. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did a little deep cleaning of my house. I did listen to a book while doing that. But overall, I truly made it a time to, like, uh, v- put in some more volunteer hours, which is something you and I are passionate about. Um, I thought I'd cook more home meals. You guys, we read a book a week. It takes a lot of time. And I thought I would get all of this time back. But I don't know. I guess it don't take that long, actually, to read a book a week because I didn't do much. What you do? Your life is different from mine. Okay. Okay, Tell me. Tell me. I don't be having off. If y'all don't. Let me just share this with y'all. Okay. Kyrie be setting me up with the reading (laughs) schedules. So I be having Mm -hmm. to read books back to back to back. And she be like on vacation. This is T. This is T. Okay. (laughs) Get into it, folks. So I be at home reading all the books. (laughs) Three books at a time like Barack Obama. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't do what? I'm just talking about facts. I'm telling you, I be at home working while you be setting me up. So that's what you did. What did you do this week? Since we had a week off, what did you do? I read a book. Okay. (laughs) And not only did I read a book, but then I had a a computer incident where I tripped on my um, internet cord and uh, my internet went out. But the good news is... I was upgraded the very next day to um, a fiber cable, whatever they do with that. One stuff, of the so. super fast ones. Ooh, child. So is that see. working now? We're going to see. Okay. Now, so listen, I don't understand. If I got to use an Ethernet cord, what's the point of Wi-Fi? <laughs> I use an Ethernet cord for our show. Yeah, it's, I don't know, girl. Let's move on. Oh. <laughs> I, I need these cords to be done with. I know. Especially if I'm tripping over By them. the way, right now I can't see you. It's like fur and then yeah, your mouth. Yeah, that's on purpose. You that's like on the purpose. cookie monster. But I'm here. <laughs> I'm right here. Okay. Uh, you threw me off. Now I need another 30 minutes to get it together. <laughs> 
Listen, you know what I did? I watched The Death of a Salesman. Oh, is that good? Uh, yeah, uh, it was really good. What's the protagonist, Ernest? No, that's the importance of being Ernest. <laughs> but that's Oscar why Wilde. Why do I have to remember that? But it's, that's from the Oscar Wilde's book, right? No, that is from Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller. All right. Well, let's move on. Now it's time for Society Says, where we share your comments, readers, with the rest of our lit society. Alexis, is there a comment you thought particularly lit this week? Indeed, I did. <laughs> and let me share. just say that I scrolled on through <laughs> the lovely IG and I found the most wonderful comment from Mona's Notebook. Uh-oh. Okay. And Mona's notebook said, I found y'all in February and started listening from episode one. Then the world slid sideways and it took me three months to start listening again. I absolutely adore you two. It's like sitting down for a book chat with my best friend and my favorite cousin. (laughs) What? Isn't that wonderful? This This is the most beautiful comment. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was warm when I heard it. It it was so beautiful. I love that. Thank you. And it's Mona's Book Club. Did I say Mona's Book Club? Lord have mercy. It's Mona's Notebook. Oh, you said Mona's Notebook. I'm sorry. It's like four in the morning. Thank you so much, (laughs) Mona's Notebook. Yes, thank you, you. Mona. Thank you, Mona's Notebook. Kyrie, yes, did you have a chance to find any litty comments? I did. And of course, I went straight to Apple Podcasts. You know, I love it over there. That's my neighborhood. And this comment is from Nell Bell's 1996. And they say, LOL, LOL, LOL. I love this podcast. I don't even read, but y'all keep me laughing. (laughs) I like the realness. Thank you, LOL. I know, right? The White Like Her podcast is hilarious. I'm slightly more motivated to read. I would love a suggestion box, maybe. I've been wanting y'all to read. I know why the cage bird sings for a while now. LOL. Love you guys. So two things about that episode. My mom called to talk to me about White Like Her, and she said she completely understands. um, Who's the writer? Gail. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the Kasich, she understood. So I was being a little judgy. (laughs) Uh, This is about a little drama in the podcast. So part of that is judgment. Okay, right, right. Um, So thank you, Nels Bells, for at least getting a laugh out of that extremely judgy episode, White Like Her. And um, sometimes we do do like a suggestion box. We do have one on like maybe Instagram. We'll send a shout out and ask for suggestions. The only issue with us is that our reading schedule is booked up months in advance. So we plan, we we're planning quarters at a time, but there's so many books we want to read that our list can be six or even eight months ahead. So it's hard to ask for suggestions and fit them in there. But we, we will. I'm looking at the why the cage bird sings right now and I need to reread it. So um, or I know why the cage bird sings. So um, thank you for that suggestion, having su- a suggestion box. And maybe we will do that in the future. But um, thanks for your comment, Nels Bells. And all thank of you, you. Yeah, thanks. And all of you, please remember to have your comments shared. Message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or, and we especially love this one, leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Now let's move on to the theme of the week. Each week, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. But this week, we're, I'm kind of switching it up. So 
Uh, as you know, if you listen to this show, if Alexis chooses the book, then I have to choose the theme. If I choose the book, then she chooses the theme. This week, we're reading a book uh, that Alexis chose. And so it's my turn to choose. And I was going to go in the way of I'm scared investments. I'm not putting you on the spot. I know you always scared. <laughs> um, but, you know, Alexis, a lot of people aren't investing right now. A lot of people are losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an opportunity to maybe share uh, some of our experience with job loss and um, how we were able to bounce back. Uh, have you ever lost a job? You ever been laid off or anything like that? And the gym job that you got fired, that you was volunteering at and got fired from, <laughs> that don't count. <laughs> That's the uh, only one yeah. I got. I haven't oh, really? been fired from a job before or laid off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no shame in it. I definitely have Mm -mm. been um, laid off. Um, And so I want to share some tips um, with how to overcome that period, because it can feel like, you know, no one likes to feel out of control of their lives. Uh, That can be a tough situation. Um, But there are things you can do to not only bounce back, but to thrive. So a few things that helped me during that in-between period that I like to share of the first being um, to in an environment like this where um, work is so, uh, you know, precarious kind of, it's, it's hard to know if you're going to have a job tomorrow for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we can do right now, because it's so easy to shop online, is to not <laughs> and to Ooh. stock up on money. <laughs> Save them coins. Um, Get out of debt. This is a great time to pay off your debt and to save up. They say save up for at least six months without work. But, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe push that to a year. It can be very hard to find something um, in your field. So saving up, not getting into more debt, forfeiting items that you would usually buy in a stronger environment. Although they say the economy is um, rebounding. Still, you know, being cautious and having that little nest egg can help you have peace of mind if the um, if in the unfortunate event uh, that we do lose our jobs. Um, There's also another uh, point that helped me is to consider your value. Document all the ways you provide value to an employer or customer or how you provide it. Um, And one thing I'll throw in here, if you're being let go like I was Um, not recently, but I I have had that experience. You're leaving probably on good terms. And if your supervisor or any coworkers have not been let go yet, they all feel really sorry for you. So (laughs) this is a great time. Actually, even if they are being let go, the time I'm talking about, everybody was let go. But they because there were no um, ill feelings, I could ask anybody for a recommendation Mm -hmm. and hound them till you get it. Because what are they going to do if you ask, you know, would you mind writing me a recommendation? Everyone's going to say yes. But actually sitting down and writing is, you know, it is. it's hard. It's hard to get people Can to I do that. Can I just say somebody asked me to write a recommendation? <laughs> How I, many I years ago? Be, I still be thinking about it. I'll be like, oh, I got to write that recommendation. See, that's that's she done had three jobs since then. Don't ask me, y'all. Don't ask me. So um, if you feel okay doing this, perhaps write the letter of recommendation yourself, leaving blanks where they can input their custom thoughts and have them sign it at the oh, end. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm. I would have yes. I would have responded that way. I would have. Yeah, make it for easy me. for your recommenders. And I mean, ask the higher ups. <laughs> if the CEO <laughs> is being let go, but you knew how he liked his coffee, and you was giving it, you know, putting it on his desk every morning. 
You better write that letter. Ask him to put his info in there and sign it. Don't play no games. That's, That's a right. great recommendation. That's a great one. <laughs> yeah. So don't feel embarrassed. You know, really don't try to uh, lose that network. LinkedIn also can be a great way to keep in contact. But get those recommendation letters and get it on paper um, and then scan it into your electronic portfolio. Another uh, tip, I guess. I don't know. Um, always know you'll bounce back. Alexis, have you had any disappointments in your life? <laughs> I could not name them, but yeah. <laughs> have you bounced back from any of them at all? All of them. All of them. Okay. <laughs> I love all that. of them. Yeah. You know, losing your job is no different. It can feel like, um, especially as we get older, Man, I can't even re-enter a company because everything's new in my field and maybe I didn't keep up on my education or I didn't have time to stay educated in, in what I do. It's okay. For real, it's okay. <laughs> there are free classes you can take. I there. would say this is not the time to like, perhaps this is not, the, do what you want, but perhaps this is not the time to invest in a master class about cooking if you don't plan to be a chef. Aww. Perhaps this is the time. I mean, maybe it is if you got the time. Um, but maybe this is an opportunity to take a free course for, for example, I am um, a copywriter, but I also deal with digital marketing. I'm also a digital marketer. Adobe has great free classes um, to help you understand their suite. So if I want to brush up on uh, Photoshop, InDesign, um, After Effects, I can take those classes. I can set a week aside and just make it my own mini conference and sharpen my skills with those tools. So this where, is a great time to do that. Mm -hmm. Where do you find your courses? Do you use places like Coursera? So I actually try to go with the Adobe suite, go to Adobe, oh, go to their it. website mm -hmm. and they offer software. Um, Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, if you're in it. design, if you're a graphic designer or you deal uh, with creating advertisements, um, then that's where I would go is directly to Adobe. I use them for everything, even the show, even this podcast. Um, but but yeah, there are other um, resources. Do you know of any? You mentioned one I'm actually not familiar with. Yeah, they're um, I think they're called MOOCs, um, Massive Online something online courses anyway um, Coursera offers and and I'm sure there's some software driven one but there are um, programs that you can look up you can learn um, different things maybe in accounting a basic accounting or oh. um, or advanced accounting classes and Coursera is one of the programs that I've used before um, they offer a lot of them free but they also offer some paid ones where you can pay a nominal fee and get a certificate mm -hmm. and, and then also there's LinkedIn learning they do have some uh software LinkedIn learning I forget about them it. yeah mm -hmm. I love those tips thank you okay all right cool so yeah um always remember your bounce back and you know sharpen those skills you do have take this time to do that another um idea or helpful tool is to establish a new daily routine now, um, you and I use a big chunk of our time volunteering. This is a great time to do something for other people and to make that work a priority because it takes you out of your immediate circumstances and helps you see the world in a broader light. You know, it's not just right. about you, um, especially if that work is truly helping other people in the long run. Then whether you have a job or not, that might be a work that you want to continue doing. Um, so, yeah, look into that. Establish a new routine. This is a great time to establish a new workout routine. Um, if you feel comfortable going outside um, 
even, you know, running right now, biking right now, it's a great time to do that. Oh, a workout in the middle of the day is exhilarating. So if you have the opportunity to do that and then get back into whatever you were doing before you started sweating it out, that's a great routine to keep up. Another uh, opportunity is to remember that your job isn't your work. Okay. And this is what that means. I'm a copywriter. Okay. But my work is writing. So if I were ever let go from um, the company I currently work for, I still have the skill of writing. I still have the design skills that I have. Um, Sharpening those, as we said before, and then looking for freelance work might be a good option. Mm. Um, And I've definitely done that before. One caveat is you also become your own, uh, what, like debt collector agency. Basically, you chasing people for your money. (laughs) (laughs) And that can be discouraging. Um, So ask for payment up front as much as you can, as much as, you you know, is fair in your field. Um, And that might be a good way to go. This is also a time to reevaluate your life and career. Uh, are you, were, was the job you got let go from even what you want to do? Is there another job That's that you've always wanted to prepare for? That's a good one. And you know what? Can your husband or your mama or your daddy like take care of you while you figure out <laughs> what you're going to do next? <laughs> or your wife. Sorry, sorry to have been like that. But yeah, can your mate or your parents Take care of you for a little bit. No shame in that. I'm so sorry, but it's really not. Don't be ashamed. My mama going to take care of me forever. And she (laughs) should already know that. You know, you're not mooching. You can pay rent to them. You can take out, not to your mate, but to your parents. (laughs) Uh, Maybe even take out a loan and seriously pay it back, you know, on a schedule. Um, but use your your family um, that are in a position and want to help you. Don't turn down help um, to redirect your your life if if you if you see that as a viable option. Another tip: <laughs> identify your Venn diagram skills. And this tip I got from Elaine Rosenblum, who wrote a snippet in a Forbes article I found very helpful. Um, she says you have more transferable skills than you know. Your Venn skills are the intersection of the skills and passions and the next step roadmap. Draw mm. two side by side circles. In the circle to the left, list your top 20 skills. Any skills, okay? Anything. Yeah, that's right. You a great baker? You bake? You a great housekeeper? You clean? You know, those are all skills too. Um, okay. Are you great at um, coding? That goes in the same circle. Okay. 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 In the circle to the right, list your top 20 passions. Okay. Ooh. Reading mm-hmm. is a passion for us. That would go yeah. in the circle to the right. Draw a line between any passion that will improve any specific skill. So draw a line between any passion that will improve any specific skill. And your sweet spot um, next job requires the skills that have the most passion lines. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So try to find a job, perhaps, if that's uh, logical, that has the most elements of both your passions and your skills. Also, just find a job. For real, I keep saying barista at Starbucks. That's a great job. So girl. <laughs> while you're waiting, g- girl and guy, work. It's fine. Yep, yep. I know looking for work is a full-time job and it can take years to find a job again. But for real, we have to be balanced. If you spend eight hours a day looking for work and never find any finding anything, that is so discouraging. Oh, that is. Mm. Whereas if you took a job that normally would, 
you know, not be something you were looking for, a barista or, or a um, sales clerk at or a um, store that you love or a waitress, yes. a waiter. Waitress. Yep. Waitress. Definitely, waiter. I've definitely done that. And that's money that day. Every day you work. Every day money. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, keep crinkling paper in the microphone. That's great. You're amazing. So um, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is um, there's nothing to be ashamed. So there's nothing to be ashamed about in taking work while you're looking for work. You cannot spend all day looking for work. That's the worst. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, I don't know if I said lastly already, but this is truly lastly. Start your job search immediately. Hey, if you're OK taking unemployment, then the moment you're told you're let go, file for unemployment that day. Yes. <laughs> don't yes. wait till the next day. Use your adrenaline, perhaps your shock. Oh, you ever been in the office and the whole department been let go? It is like the last day of high school. People, <laughs> people are crying. They're packing oh, up no. their boxes. It's like moving. It's like someone t- coming to your house and saying, you got to clear all this out. You out of oh, here no. today. Because we kind of live at work. So, we do. So we it's do. an emotional thing and it's really draining. But use all of that emotion to apply for unemployment if you feel comfortable doing so and then start your job search immediately maybe apply for five jobs that day and job applications are like books pages and pages and pages long Ugh. so five is aggressive you know can yes. you do four can you That's do a three? lot yeah so those are my tips we're talking about black millionaires today we're talking about people who were truly self-made they came from the plantation to their own big house but some of us are going from the big house to the plantation and that's okay too. And that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> you know, we, we got to work. That's fine. Um, so that's that on that. Did you have anything? Nothing like else to, to add? add. I love yeah. the tips. Cause you've never been let go from nothing. All right, let's take a break. <laughs> Can you please tell us a little something about the author of Black Fortunes and perhaps his inspiration for writing this book? Can I tell you just those breaks are so fast? Okay. All right. <laughs> Listen, the author is Shamari Show Wills and he was born in Washington, D.C. He grew up in an area called the Gold Coast. It's an enclave of black professionals, artists and politicians. He attended Morehouse College for undergrad and Columbia Journalism School for his graduate degree, Columbia Journalism School. And that degree was in writing and broadcast journalism. He also won the Linton Book Writing Fellowship in 19, excuse me, in 2013 from Columbia. Um, As a journalist, he was a producer on CNN Tonight with Don Lemon and at Good Morning America, where he won an Emmy as part of the production team in 2017. He's the author of Black Fortunes, of course, one of Ebony's Ebony Magazine's True Read Picks of 2018. He contributed to the New York Carib News and Columbia Journalism Review. He's the winner of a 2019 American Library Association honor and a 2018 African American Literary Award. 
Black Fortunes was published in 2018. It was in part inspired by his great, great uncle, John Drew, who owned the first black bus company and was a Negro League baseball team owner and one of the first black millionaires in the Philadelphia area. Let me tell you a little bit about his Uncle John. After emancipation, Uncle John's father bought a farm near the plantation where he was enslaved and became the first black person in the county to own property. He would later rent out this land. When Uncle John Mott Drew reached adulthood, his father sold all the land he owned and gave the money to his children and said, go make something out of yourselves. Uncle John brought real estate. He would later buy a bus because he saw that black people had no way to get to work. He founded the John Drew bus line, becoming the first African-American to own a bus line. In 1930, he sold his business. Uncle John was also a stock trader. Well, he had to hire a white man to trade on his behalf, but he was a mm-hmm. stock trader and he benefited. He had some financial gains from that. He took his money out just before the great crash of 1929 and walked away with over a quarter million dollars. He, he died. just had an inkling like this is too good. I'm taking my money out. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, he died which... with no will. So yeah. that is our author and his inspiration. I love his name, Shamari. I think it means like powerful. Strong, oh, I like that. Something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I, yeah, like I love that name, Shamari. OK, thank you, Alexis. Can you please give us a brief synopsis of the book with no spoilers? OK. After years of being treated like property, black Americans were free and seeking opportunity. This story details the lives of six African-Americans who overcame adversity and hatred to become America's first black millionaires. Kari, what yes. were your first thoughts? You know, I just um, I am kind of drained from all the reading that we do. And I know to some people it's not a lot, but with our schedule, it's a lot. So I wasn't that thrilled to start this book. Mm. We had just took a week off and my mind was still in vacation mode. But then when I started, um, I mean, I don't want to step on our final verdicts, but I was happy that I did. Uh, So my first thought was I never heard of Shamari. Uh, Willis, I've never heard of Black Fortunes, the book. Um, so I, I didn't know what to think. What about you? What were your first thoughts? So uh, this is a pick that I, I got roaming through the library when it opened back up. And I was so excited to be there. So I saw the title and was like, oh, this would be interesting. And that was that. Okay. We are reading this book. Well, thank you. Now it's time. Now it's the time we've all been waiting for a deep dive filled with spoilers of Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. Take it away, Alexis. Okay, so in 1841, William Leesdesdorf told his blonde-haired, blue-eyed fiance Hortense that he was Black. His mother was a Jewish-Danish sailor. No, his father was. I'm going to start that one more time. One more time, okay? I was about to say, that's way more interesting than the way I read it. (laughs) Stop it. I got to get it together. One more time. mama was a sailor. (laughs) One more again. One more again. I might leave that in. Go ahead. (laughs) In 1841, William 
Gliesdesdorf told his blonde hair, blue eyed fiance Hortense he was black. His father was a Jewish Danish sailor and his mother was a black island woman. His father, his fiance told him to run because her father would never allow them to marry. That evening, Hortense told her father her fiance was black. Incensed, her father announced the wedding was off, dragged her into her room, pushed her inside, and told her you will never see that nigger again, turning and locking her in the room. The next day, Lee Desdor received the engagement ring from Hortense's father yeah. and decided to leave New Orleans. He sold everything he owned and purchased a ship. The day he was to leave the city, he saw a funeral procession. Hortense was dead. So what happened here? Did her parents kill her? I I don't know. They don't tell us. So she could I thought that today maybe like, she committed suicide. But then why even tell your dad? Oh, race is like it's uh, horrible, right? It's horrible. <laughs> I don't think uh, they killed her. I mean, that was an option, right? Because they did not say what happened to her. <gasps> Ooh. Mm-mm-mm. There's yeah. a story there, but mm-hmm. yeah, Lee, Lee Desdorf would go on to become the first African-American to achieve a net worth of more than a million dollars in the history of the U.S. At his death, his fortune and legacy would be stolen in one pen stroke. So our first millionaire is Mary Ellen Pleasant. Mary Ellen was born free and black in 1814. Her father was native Kanaka, which is probably like Hawaiian or something. And her mother was a Negress. When she was seven years old, she was sent to live on the island of Nantucket to go to school. The family she lived with there were likely business associates of her father since he was a a traveling silk merchant. The Hussey family. That's who she went to live with. They were known to be the most powerful and best known family in Nantucket. They were also known for being dishonest. So (laughs) when Mary Ellen arrived, Grandma Hussey never sent her to school. She said, call me Grandma, baby. And Mary Ellen would later learn that her father was sending money every year for her education. But the Hussey family made her work in the store. Mary Ellen was smart and quick at everything. So they kept her in the store and she had a great personality so she could engage people. And anybody that came in and dealt with her always bought something. She would later say that she blamed Grandma Hussey for keeping her out of school or the Hussey family in general for keeping her out of school. Despite being um, held back, Mary Ellen learned to read and write, but she eventually focused on mastering human behavior and financial capital. Nantucket was the largest producer of whale oil at that time. Whale oil was used as lighting and heating oil and was a prized commodity in the U.S., second only to cotton. Mm, mm, mm. And it was like the number one um, for like England, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so without this whale oil, they pretty much were living in the dark. Yeah. 
Men abandoned work in town to work on the docks and on the open waters, opening the door for women to become entrepreneurs. Mary Ellen was reared during this economic boom. When Mary Ellen wasn't working with Grandma Hussey, she would visit Nantucket's free black community, Newtown, which was made up of black whalers, escaped slaves, and domestic servants. On this side of town, Mary Ellen learned about abolition. One day, Mary Ellen heard a recently escaped slave by the name of Frederick Douglass at an, an abolitionist convention. Mary Ellen decided that day that she would go to Boston. So she boarded a steamship, relocated to Boston, maintaining, of course, her close connections with the Hussey family. When she arrived, she took on work as an apprentice to a cobbler. But she knew that in order to secure her future, she needed to get married. And Mary Ellen had her eye out. Okay, Mary Ellen was a charming woman and she had a way with words as so her success in the store. And one day she met James W. Smith, a well-dressed businessman who identified as Cuban. Identifying as Cuban allowed him not to be uh, affected by the, uh, the caste system. That was there in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mary Ellen learned that Smith was well off and he shared her passion for racial justice. He was also an abolitionist. Mary Ellen and Smith married within the month. Smith had a home in Boston and a plantation in Charlestown, West Virginia. Smith died two years after they married. And on his deathbed, Smith asked Mary Ellen to promise to devote a portion of his money that he was leaving her to freeing slaves. He left his entire estate to Mary Ellen. After her husband's death, Mary Ellen grew close to his late husband, to her late husband's land manager, John James Pleasant, JJ. She would marry John, JJ in 1848. Later in 1848, the gold rush happened in California. And men all over the country were heading to California in droves to get this money or to right. find gold. J.J. left and members of the Hussey family <clears throat> went to California in 1849. Pleasant decided she might as well head over to California as well. She had connections and she could keep an eye on her husband. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too. When Mary Ellen arrived in California, she realized that the town was different. It was dirty. It was nasty. It was filthy. Rats scurried around. Ugh. And men, the people too. Were like, oh, go ahead. You getting there. Sorry. The men wandered around the streets intoxicated, bellowing and catcalling. Women dressed elegantly with exposed collarbones, off shoulder dresses and pinned up hair. And these women were known as entertainers and they were managed by men called Max. I'm just saying. That's what <laughs> you the book see the said. space Alexis is giving. <laughs> Scandal. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. As a woman of means, Mary Ellen decided that she could be a money lender. She saw opportunity. She knew that people were coming from wherever they was coming from spending their life savings in hopes that they would find gold here in California. Can I so, add a footnote? So she was coming from Quaker land from like a land full of Quakers. 
So not only were these white people that were also abolitionists, but they were reserved. <laughs> okay. And then she was dumped in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And folks was different. Okay. Different, so this was different. like shocking. Um, like a bit of um like offensive too, a little bit coming mm-hmm. from where she came from. And her first thought was, Well, I can profit off of all this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here, ain't I? Shoot. You can say that again. She saw the opportunity and she said, let me help these people out. So she gave money to some connected friends and lent it out at 10% interest per month. She also sold silver. And by 1858, Mary Ellen was worth more than $150,000 a year. And that was ingenious. Like, how did she... Even learn the boat connect, the shipping connections to sell it to what, Panama mm-hmm. or to get her silver. She yeah. was selling Panama gold and getting silver in exchange yep. and then selling silver. Man, she was just smart. Yep. She was smart. She was smart. Yeah. The mystery of her success as an investor led people to speculate. You know, when you're doing great, people are always speculating <laughs> and stuff. When you're doing great, people got to hate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> so they said she was involved in voodoo, that she traded sex for financial advice, that she eavesdropped on dinners she catered. Mary Ellen saw no need to explain. And in truth, she grew up in the boom of the welling years of Nantucket. And her years there prepared her to make money during the California gold rush. Many of the most successful participants in the gold rush came from Welling towns. In addition to building her wealth, Mary Ellen continued to look for ways to support the abolitionist cause and other black causes. She even funded a failed insurrection. After the Civil War, Mary Ellen worked to stop violations of the Civil Rights Act including filing lawsuits against streetcar um, street employers. Like, or no, the whole company, right? Yeah, the whole company. Uh, streetcar companies. Allow black people. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> streetcar companies <laughs> yeah. and railroad. Oh, it says that right there. Streetcar companies and railroad <laughs> companies. Yeah. These lawsuits would allow Maya Angelou to become San Francisco's first black streetcar conductor in 1944. After the Civil War, Chinese immigrants started migrating to California to work in the mines and open laundries. At the time, California was the most was had a mostly white population. So in retaliation, anti-Chinese laws were passed, which included tax on the wages of foreign miners and the San Francisco police would ignore crimes if the victims were Chinese or Indian leading to the massacre of Indians in 1870 and a mass lynching of Chinese immigrants in 1871. Right. After Mallory Allen won in court from these railroad and streetcar companies, she was able to purchase a mansion in downtown San Francisco. She made renovations and turned it into a boarding house. She made $15,000 profit the first year. Then she opened laundries what that is? to offer what cleaning that? services. I'm sorry, go ahead. Do you remember what that $15,000 is by today's standards? 300000 Okay. Yeah, 300000 
So the process for having your clothes laundered was a big deal back then, apparently. It was strange. Yes. I didn't didn't realize this was a thing. What happened to going into the the washroom and, you know, getting that bucket and just get you some soap, the same soap you wash your body with. But they wasn't washing their bodies. Hey, 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 that's not what they was doing. (laughs) Listen, the um. It was common to see wealthy men walking down the street with brown tobacco and coffee stains on their shirts. <laughs> Can you imagine? No. Uh, not at all. Uh, listen, to have your clothes laundered, people were sending them off to China or Hawaii, <laughs> right? On a steamship. They would have pay $25 for this and then they would then send it back. So not only was it far, but it took a long time for the return. Mary Ellen's business with the laundries that she opened made her upwards of $4,000 a year in profits, $80,000 today a year. Mary Ellen became known as the woman who could get things done. She had money, connections. She was friends with the governor of California and she helped where she could. Her kitchen became known as the Black City Hall. I think like half of her a portion of her house was kitchen. I don't know. I didn't get that. But that's what it was called. People would enter that back way and she would put on these elaborate meals for people. One boarder she took in was Thomas Bell, a white man. Together, the two of them began investing their money together and their investments made Pleasant a millionaire. Their relationship opened the door for more speculation. So Mary Ellen set Bell up with a friend of hers and the two married. Mary Ellen planned and catered the wedding. After Belle's wedding, JJ, her husband, died from diabetes. The Bells moved into the mansion that Mary Ellen renovated. Okay, so they're now living in her home. They're all the people she has left. Yeah, so there was like speculation that her relationship with Mr. Bell wasn't on the up and up and that there was some funny business going on. And to put a stop to that, she fixed him up with somebody (laughs) to put a stop to the rumors. And then that new somebody and Mr. Bell lived in her house with her. It was like the three of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I mean, probably servants and stuff. So Yeah, Yeah. of course, servants and stuff. But they seem like a little makeshift family. Mm -hmm. That was all she had left. And so in 1892, Thomas Bell died after falling 50, excuse me, 20 feet from the top stairs of um, the mansion. And this happened to be a a time when the wife was not home. She went over to stay in Mary Ellen's house and Mary Ellen came back to stay in the, the mansion. But the son was there. So what happened, how he died, why he died is, um, up for speculation because apparently he died from a heart attack, right? No. What was it? He fell 20 feet. (laughs) (laughs) So in my mind, he had a heart attack and fell 20 feet off the staircase. Oh. Um, Well, anyway. And then the press who was calling her Mamie at the time to like insult her because they was jealous. The press was like, nah, she did it because remember she a voodoo priestess. Yes, yes. <laughs> she was that, like, oh, not this again. Yeah, she she lived through a lot of speculation in her life, but she she handled it well. You know how Beyonce don't respond to the haters? <laughs> yes, she didn't respond did. to the haters. No, she didn't do that. That's how that happened. Yep. Um. So anyway, when Belle died, 
before Bell died, Mary Ellen told him, don't list me in your, um, don't leave me nothing in your will. I got my own money. I'm good. You don't have to. And I don't want that issue of people saying that I, you know, made you give me money. Listen, that's not what it is. I don't want nobody to think anything's going on. Okay. Don't leave me nothing. Well, she left it. He left his money to his family. Well, his son and his his son kind of blew through the money. And I think the wife, too. They blew through the money. And then they turned around and um, well, the son turned around and was like, well, Mary Ellen stole Belle's money and I want her money, too. So it's like no matter what she tried, it didn't matter. There were there was always going to be a tinge of speculation. The case divided the city. Um, The African-Americans sided with the elderly Mary Ellen. And at the time, I think she was like 83. And the whites sided with the Bell family. Mary Ellen got into more entanglements with the Bell family. It was a mess. They took her to court and everything. But when she died in 1904, her estate was worth six hundred thousand dollars. That's sixteen point two million dollars today. Let us meet Robert Reed Church. Robert Reed Church was born in 1839 to an enslaved, fair-skinned woman, Emmeline, and a married man, Captain Charles B. Church. Church spent most of his time on the Mississippi River, where he commanded a fleet of steamships. Emmeline would serve as his concubine. Emmeline also birthed another son, but it didn't belong to Captain Church, and he had blue eyes and could pass for white, while Robert Reed had fair skin, but couldn't pass for white as easily. In her final days, Emmeline asked Captain Church to set Robert Reed free after she died and sent him to school for colored children in Cincinnati. Captain Church agreed. However, when Emmeline died in 1851, Captain Church came for his son, then 12, and he didn't send him to school. Instead, he took Robert Reed to live and work on his steamship. Captain Church was a slaveholder and several of his slaves worked on the steamship as well. The suggestion is that perhaps um, Captain did this to keep an eye on his son. Possibly working on the ship with Captain was the safest place. And one reason why it would be the safest place is because the fugitive slave laws empowered slave traders to um, capture free black, free African-Americans and enslave them with or without proof they'd ever been enslaved. Or it could be that he wanted to um, have Robert Reed as his legacy. So this is like really horrific. You could he could have sent his son to school, um, but there's no telling that a white person wouldn't kidnap him and make him their slave. Right. (laughs) That's insane. And then also that he like had some affection for the boy because that truly was his son. Mm -hmm. And he it seemed like his kids didn't last long. I think his son with his wife died at like 10 years old or something yeah he, they had like mm-hmm. seven kids together and all of them were either sickly or died young yeah so the child he had with the um, black slave looked like him and he liked him and he would have a picture taken together in matching <laughs> outfits uh, so he probably was like I kind of just want you to be near me yeah all the time just because I like you a lot and you're my son yeah And also you can be my slave. So win-win for me, not you for me. Yikes. That's a thing. So Captain Church ships were described as floating palaces. So I would say modern day uh, cruise ships, right? But not carnival. Go ahead. Right. 
Exactly, because he was also shipping Cotton Bell on there. So, you know, yeah. on the cruise ships, <laughs> they don't be having Sorry. that stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, anyway, Robert Reed worked as a captain, bo- a cabin boy. So he would help the cook in the kitchen. He took officers on the ship, their meals. A messen- He was a messenger for the crew. He would engage with the wealthy families and gamblers on the boat. His presence intrigued um the passengers and they would ask him to run errands in exchange for hefty tips. Uh, Captain Church would offer him guidance such as don't let anyone call you a nigger fight if necessary to protect yourself against such insults. If, if someone strikes you hit him back and I'll back you. He urged him to never be a coward and Robert Reed lived by that. He was never allowed to call the captain father, but again, his father did show him affection. As Kari mentioned, they took matching pictures together. <laughs> matching outfit pictures. Can you imagine? I guess that's a thing. In 18- and I think he was a grown man. And his white, his white daddy was like, uh, son, I got these uh, pipe hats and we are going to go to the saloon and take photos together. Whatever. Hey, hey, look, I ain't mad at y'all. Do what you do. Okay. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So in 1855, the captain's ship caught fire and sank while carrying $100,000 in cotton. The destruction took the lives of four of his slaves and 21 other people. Robert escaped with his life. In 1858, Captain purchased another steamboat and made Robert Reed a steward, the highest possible position for a slave on a ship. Robert was 19. Captain Church also arranged for Robert to have a slave marriage with a woman owned by some friends of his. Slave marriages were arranged with the sole purpose of producing additional slaves for the owners. In 1859, this marriage. That is so dark. Yeah. Produced a daughter named Laura. In 1861, the steamship that Captain Church owned was commandeered by the Confederate sailors and Robert Reed was left behind on the steamship to fight for the side that wanted him to stay in bondage. He Mm. would later escape that ship when it was surrounded by Union ships. After Robert Reed fled the Confederate ship, he sought out his father. And his father offered to support him in his endeavors. His father also explained that he had no choice but to leave him behind with the Confederates when they commandeered his ship. Robert Reed would meet and marry Louisa or Lou Ayers. Lou was educated and genteel. Robert was gruff and spoke broken English. They would have a daughter named Mary together in 1863. Robert would later go to the to New Orleans to get the daughter from his first from his wife. First, yeah. And like she he thought about this for a long time. Like, should I marry Lou? I really love her. She speaks French and English and I barely speak English. You know, she's like <laughs> a shiny. She's like a shiny brown woman. And I just really like her. Um, but I have this wife that's not really a wife, but it's a slave wife. Um, so I'm going to go see if uh, I can just get my daughter from her. And that's that woman was married again, too. She had her own husband, gave the child a new last name. She had moved on with her life. And the owners probably like arranged another marriage for her. Right. I, was this still maybe, but I this don't know, been, the Civil War is. 
Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what were you going to say? I think that is the case. This is like a weird transition. Mm -hmm. It's hard to understand what happened there for me. Yeah. Um, Because I don't know when slavery was officially ended where she lived. Right, right. So he brought her and um, he went to get his daughter, Laura, his firstborn child. He brought her back to Memphis and he changed her name to church. In Memphis, Robert opened a billiard hall after he was denied a license because he was black. He, He asked permission they said, no. He said, forget y'all. I'm going to do it anyway. And he yeah, did. He did. Mm-hmm. And then one night he was arrested for operating a billiard hall without a license. But Robert hired a lawyer and went to trial just days after the Civil Rights Act was passed. And the charges were dropped. He so was- this is like back to his father who told him never to back down mm-hmm. to fight. Yep. Um, yeah, so he could have just closed shop and been like, oh, well, but no, he hired a lawyer. Mm-hmm. One of the many times he would have to hire a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Um, to the black community, he was a hero. And to the ex-Confederate white population, mm, he was marked. Mm-hmm. One night, the peace of Memphis was shattered after the ex-Confederates were fed up with the liberties that black Union soldiers who happened to be policing the town were taken. They went to find Robert. They wanted to kill the black man who'd opened a business in spite of the state, then use the civil rights law to get off. That evening, they came to his billiard hall and told him to close up the hall. And when he turned his back, they shot him in the head. In Memphis, an uneasy peace existed between the races. It was shattered by free black men taking a liberty that the ex-Confederates could not stomach, having sex with white women. A riot began with a quarrel between the Memphis police and Black Union soldiers outside a brothel by the riverfront, where Black Union troops were known to bed white prostitutes. The scrum escalated and several of the Union troops were gunned down. The Memphis police then went on a murderous crawl through the city, shooting Black men in white northern carpetbaggers and raping Black women. As the riots raged on, word reached Robert that the mob was looking for him. They wanted to kill the black men who had opened a business in spite of the state and then used the Civil Rights Act to get off scot-free. As Robert dressed that day, Lou, pregnant with their second child, begged him to remain home for fear he'd be killed. He slicked his black hair, goatee, and mustache straight with oil and put on his jacket. No, he told her. He was not going to hide. He showed up at his billiard hall and opened shop. He stayed until nightfall, but hardly anyone showed up. Still, he refused to close up. He wasn't hoping to avoid the white mob. He was waiting for them. Never be a coward, Captain Church had taught him. It had just begun to rain when the group of men finally showed up. Get out here, the man standing outside, wearing police uniforms and holding guns, yelled. David Roach, an Irish police officer, told Robert to close up the hall. Robert went back in the shop, turning his back on the men. He heard the crash of shattering glass as bullets started to ring out. He then heard a pop and felt a burning in the back of his neck. It took him a moment to realize he'd been shot. The men stormed the store as Church lay on the floor bleeding from his head. They drank from the bottles and barrels of whiskey at the bar. They removed several hundred dollars from the cash register. They broke his pool tables. Finally, they left him for dead and put a torch to his building with him inside. The rain slowed the flames as they engulfed the store. And somehow Robert dragged himself from the burning building, half dead, with a bullet wound in his head. He had escaped possible death for the third time. When the events of the riot were investigated, even after having identified all those involved, the feds decided the riot did not merit federal charges, even though 46 blacks were killed, five black women were raped, 
75 people, including Robert, were injured. Over 100 were robbed, 91 homes, 12 black schools, five black churches Mm -mm. burned, and $100,000 in property damage was done. That's devastating. That's devastating. While many left Memphis as a result of this inaction from the federal government, thousands more thousands more stayed refusing to give in to mob terror. Robert saw the opportunity. And as people began to leave, he began buying real estate. He purchased five properties in what was coming to be known as the Bill Street District. Bill Street was the heart of black Memphis. Black folks was living it up in this area. The throngs of black people was a constant source of complaint for white women who needed to cross through the district to run errands. On one Sunday afternoon, Robert was minding his own business, talking to a group of men, when a police officer approached and told them to disperse. When they didn't comply, the officer grabbed Robert by the collar. Robert wrestled free drew his gun (laughs) and fired a warning shot. The police officer pulled out his gun, pistol whipped Robert and dragged him off to jail. Robert hired a lawyer and evaded formal charges. That was crazy to me. It is. So he, he, I mean, right. He shouldn't have ever been approached. Okay. But an officer approached him. He fired his gun, a warning shot, in the officer's direction, okay? <laughs> Take that for what you will. The officer beats him to the ground and no charges. That, would, that wouldn't happen today. <laughs> That's what surprised me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. In 1870, Robert built, rebuilt his billiard hall. As um, I mentioned before, when he was shot in the head, they burned down his building, his place. Woo terrible and stepped over him after they shot him him for for dead so he rebuilt it but then there was a yellow fever outbreak in memphis and there were masses of people leaving robert packed up his family and sent them off he didn't want them um, to be affected but as people left robert saw another opportunity he purchased more property and wait but he just looked at the ground and was like this ground dirty I bet this is why everybody getting sick. So I'm going to buy up their houses when they leave. Because as soon as we get clean, everything going to be fine. <laughs> and he was right. And he was right. <laughs> he was right. That was indeed the cause. The standing water and... Um, of cholera. Yep, yeah. The standing water. Um, so after the pandemic, after the epidemic, Memphis emerged bankrupt. And in order to pay down debt, Memphis issued bonds. Robert was the first to purchase one with $1,000. After his purchase, other prominent businesses and families followed suit. So there would be no Memphis, perhaps, without Robert. Absolutely, because he kicked it off and other people were hesitant. In 1884, he divorced his second wife and began courting a well-known black Memphis educator who had an aristocratic air. She was ashamed of her slavery roots and claimed her family was never enslaved, but were willing servants of white patrons. She encouraged (laughs) Robert to whitewash his past the same way she whitewashed hers. 
But she didn't really, though. That's a terrible lie. We wasn't slaves. We wanted to work for them. That is a terrible lie. We were employees during slavery. It was a coincidence. (laughs) Yuck. Yeah. Anyway. So in 1885, a lumber factory caught on fire and caused one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars worth of damages. Robert was there, y'all. He was taking (laughs) his stuff out the street, but he was seeing all the money he could make. So Robert saw the opportunity and swooped in and bought dozens of burned out homes. Wait, wait, just to clarify. So the lumber thing caught fire and then the whole block started catching yes. fire because for real, it's a lumber house. Yep. So he was like, hey, all of my employees take all of my stuff outside so it don't burn when this building burned to the ground. Everybody building burned to the ground but his. Yes. <laughs> so his stuff was just in the street. He was like, oh, put that back in the street. I mean, in the in building, the building uh, yes. that didn't burn down that I own. And also, I'm going to buy up all these burnt buildings and renovate them. Listen. Wow. Just wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And after he did that, he owned nearly half of downtown Memphis <laughs> after that fire. He fixed the fire damage, renovated the properties and rented them out. In 1900, after a lifetime fight, I mean, he was fighting the Memphis people. Now, every time something would happen big, like when the fire burned down, the um, yellow fever outbreak, uh, Uh, the riots people would leave Robert was never leaving he kept staying you're right he fought he stayed and he bought yes stayed (laughs) fought and bought he wasn't gonna leave his property his um that's what his father instilled in him ultimately that's what I say about that um and and because of that it was time that he was gonna build this big arena and so he was like, listen, I, I want to be successful. Now, he's a little older now. I think he's in his 80s. And he's like, I want to build my arena and I want my arena to be great. But I don't want these white people coming and burning my stuff down. I'm sick of them. How can I be diplomatic about this? Well, they were having a, a an event. The ex-Confederate soldiers were having an event. So Robert decided, let me just donate them $100 since $1,000 since they're struggling. <laughs> And um, hopefully that'll keep them off of me. I'm going to give the racists $1,000 so that they don't burn my stuff down. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. And it worked. <laughs> and it worked. So okay. a few weeks after the donation, Robert opened the church parking auditorium. It had 1,200 seats, two levels, and a balcony. This is a, an event space that I think President Roosevelt would eventually come and speak at. By 1906, he owned most of Bill Street, the Bill Street District. He even opened a bank where he deposited $25,000 of his own money. And when a run on the banks happened, I want to say in 1907, Robert put money in the window (laughs) to make sure Mm -hmm. people knew that his his bank wasn't going down. He had the money to cover Mm -hmm. their money. So there was no run on his bank. In August of 1912, Robert Reed Church died of a heart attack and his estate was worth over a million dollars at his death. Oh, W. Gurley, our third millionaire. In 1892, the federal government purchased 6,361 acres from the Cherokee tribe in the former Indian Territory of Oklahoma and promised to open the land up for settlement to homesteaders on a first-come, first-served basis at exactly noon on September 16, 
1893. Among these homesteaders was Ottawa W. Gurley, who was born in Huntsville, Alabama, and raised in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. He was just 24 years old. He had become a teacher and later an employee of the United States Postal Service. In 1905, Tulsa hit an oil boom. Gurley noticed and moved to Tulsa. He brought a 40-acre land and built a grocery store. He also forged a partnership with John the Baptist Stratford, also known as J.B. J.B. prescribed to the philosophies to the philosophies of W.E.B. Du Bois, while O.W. subscribed to the philosophies of Booker T. Washington. And while the, and the men... Mm-hmm. The difference was like an emphasis on capitalism or on... Um, education? Education, yeah. yeah. The two... While there hard were work versus education. Sorry, hard work versus education. Yeah. The two men... Um, Though they had that difference, the two men began to develop an all-black district in the unincorporated stretch of land on the north side of Tulsa's train station. Soon that area, the entire north side of Tulsa, was referred to as Greenwood. He would build the crowning project of the area, the the Gurley Hotel on Greenwood Avenue which was valued at 55000 and rivaled the best white hotels in Tulsa. O.W. and J.B. both became rich as the oil industry boomed. In 1914, the local black paper reported Gurley's net worth as 150000 which was $5.6 million today. Gurley was made a sheriff's deputy by the city of Tulsa and charged with policing the black community in um, Greenwood. His wealth and coziness with the white establishments in Tulsa created resentment among the black members of society. Some felt that he had too much power. Others saw him as an Uncle Tom. Greenwood would become an affluent black enclave in a white city where blacks controlled no political institution and could rely on one another to protect themselves from racial hostility. On the other side of the tracks, resentment simmered. Literature was distributed saying there were rapes of white women by black men. Blacks were intimidated at the voting polls. Blacks in Tulsa responded with public protests, raising racial tensions to a boiling point. Under Gurley, Greenwood's population went from 1900 59 people to 8,000 people. The growth made the growth made local whites paranoid. Oklahoma was still though like the wild wild west. Men and women walked around carrying pistols and they were quick to respond to attacks or threats. One evening, three white men came into Gurley's hotel and encountered Gurley's wife, Emma, and the white man told her that they was looking for some good time girls. When Gurley arrived to find the men harassing his wife, Gurley rushed the men, gave them a bit of a tumble. Until he they- told him, you can take the uh, window or the stairs, <laughs> which one you want. And then he kicked them down the <laughs> stairs. And they then ran out of the <laughs> hotel. That event made people feel like the richest black man in Greenwood was becoming a man of the people. 
but that didn't last long as he was later (laughs) charged with bribery by two women in Greenwood. In 1919, Gurley resigned as sheriff's deputy when he obtained a warrant for the white man, for a white man who had assaulted a black woman on the trolley. He took that warrant over to the Tulsa sheriff mm-hmm. on the white side, and the sheriff ripped, ripped the, um, ripped the warrant, warrant up. Yeah. And so you're never arresting a white man as long as I'm like I'm never gonna allow this to happen. Oof. Yeah. And he said, well, then I can't enforce law. So that, of course, frustrated um, Gurley. In 1919, as the black newspapers carried news of Madam C.J. Walker's death, three black men were arrested in Tulsa on the suspicion of shooting a white iron worker. The men were transported to the Tulsa County Jail just across the train tracks from Greenwood in the white section of Tulsa and put into a cell together. Word traveled through the grapevine back to Tulsa that a white mob had plans to take the men from the cell that night and lynch them. Within hours, a posse of black men was organized. More than two dozen black men carrying revolvers and rifles marched across the train track to the jail and barged in. They demanded to see the prisoners and got into a shouting match with the police. As the confrontation escalated, men on both sides began to move their fingers toward the triggers of their guns. As the tension reached a breaking point, Gurley sauntered through the door. His hair was now gray and he wore glasses with a thick circular lens. He was a rich man and wore an expensive suit on his broad frame with the sheriff's star pinned to his breast and a pistol at his side. He walked up to the police chief and the two walked away conversing in whispers. A few moments later, a deal had been brokered. Gurley was given assurances that the men wouldn't be harmed and the police would allow the group from Greenwood to check on the prisoners if they left immediately thereafter. A delegation of the men from the group, escorted by an officer, went back to check on the men in the cell. A few minutes later, they came back, reporting that the prisoners were being well-treated and the men went back to Greenwood. The aftermath would send chills through White Tulsa. The independence and strength of Greenwood had been reluctantly tolerated as long as Gurley could keep the blacks under control. But this armed invasion, as it was later called, set off alarms. The Negroes were getting out of their place. A few months later, a black man was accused of assaulting a black woman on a trolley in downtown Tulsa. Gurley obtained a warrant for the man but was forbidden from arresting him. Tulsa Sheriff Willard McCullough reportedly ripped the warrant from Gurley's hands, stating he would never allow a black man to serve a warrant on a white man in Tulsa. In response, Gurley resigned as a sheriff's deputy and handed McCullough his badge. In 1921, Dick Rowland went into the Drexel building in Tulsa. He used the colored-only bathroom. He stepped on the elevator and it closed for just a moment. When it opened, the 17-year-old girl who was the elevator operator screamed and ran out of the elevator when the doors opened. Police investigated. They found no harm. Nothing happened. They didn't see it as a problem. No big deal. The next day, the newspaper headlines read, Nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. So because all of... 
after the paper came out and all this public uproar or outcry about it, the officers were like, well, maybe we should go arrest the black guy. (laughs) Um, And meanwhile, the girl was giving her account of the story and she was like, look, I'm nervous. Mm, (laughs) I'm just a nervous person. (laughs) So when he walked into the elevator, I ran out screaming. So they did arrest the the man, the young boy. Um, I mean, he was like 19. Right. right? He was a young they, boy. Yeah. So they arrested the boy. The officers did to appease the public. And then when they did that, it started like this chain of events because um, the people in Greenwood thought, well, obviously you're going to try to lynch them or the, the townspeople in the area are going to try to lynch him and he's innocent. So we're not going to allow it. And sure enough, locals were trying to gather a lynch mob to lynch him. And he hadn't done it. All he did was step on an elevator. Right. Right. So that erupted into a a dispute. And that dispute um, and struggle developed between the opposing parties in front of the jail where the young boy was being kept because they kept him in um, jail overnight. They expected to release him over day. The... um, People from Greenwood was coming like, hey, don't lynch him. The people on the um, Tulsa side, the white men were like, we lynching him tonight. But the sheriff was there to stop it. But it got out of hand. The scuffle and kind of a scuffle ensued. A shot was fired. And the next thing you know, the whites started firing on all the black people. And then they chased us. Gurley and the sheriff were like working together to keep peace. Mm -hmm. Yep. But. Yeah. And then um, mm-hmm. yeah. the white rioters chased the blacks back onto Greenwood, into Greenwood, and destroyed the city. Burned it down. Mm-hmm. Burned it down. Um, Greenwood was destroyed, and Gurley lost faith in his people and more than $250,000, $3.4 million in the riots. He would later move to South Los Angeles and open a hotel. Hannah Elias. Oh, I was hoping you was going to tell her story. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm going to tell them all. Because <laughs> her story. <laughs> I was cracking up. I know, right? Okay, anyway. <laughs> Hannah Elias. She is the youngest daughter of Charles Elias. The Eliases were a family of 11. Charles Elias was a caterer and his wife was married. They lived in a three-story town house in one of America's first free black neighborhoods, I believe in Philadelphia. The house was on a street inhabited by the settlement's wealthiest black residents, doctors, dentists, preachers, lawyers, and undertakers. The family was considered fairly well-to-do. Charles Elias aspired to greatness. Charles Elias was hosting the Baptist wedding of his oldest daughter, Hattie. It was going to be great. He had a full, full spread and Hattie was going to be, you know, the most beautiful. Well, Hannah shows up at the wedding and that evening (laughs) she was considered the belle of the evening. They couldn't stop talking about her. Her dress was beautiful. She she outstaged the bride. Outstaged the bride. Several days (laughs) later, 
A group of police would arrive at the family home with a warrant to arrest Hannah for larceny. Her employer, a wealthy white woman, heard what Hannah had worn to the wedding and concluded that Hannah had borrowed a dress from her without consent. She was arrested and that evening went before the judge and was convicted of larceny and spent four months in prison in South Philadelphia. Listen, can I just say, (laughs) when I read this, I was shocked at the audacity of the employer. Right. However, it does seem that Hannah stole that dress. <laughs> I was rooting for yeah, Hannah. So that I was rooting yeah, for I you. I was rooting for her, but I do think she stole it. I think she stole it to outshine everybody at the wedding. Yeah. yeah. And she was the youngest baby. So, you know, young, youngest. And the neighbors knew she was mischievous. <laughs> yes, they did call If her. it was one problem in that perfect household, it was the baby girl. Uh-huh. And this was just oh. further proof of that. Mm-hmm. So when Hannah was released from prison, she returned to the family home and her father rejected her. She said, he said, you're banned from the house indefinitely. He was still embarrassed he cut her by off her from arrest. the family. Say it again. Yeah, he was. He cut her off from the family. He was so embarrassed that she stole this dress and got arrested that he cut her off from the family. Yeah. I mean, does the punishment fit the crime? He he was listen. He was focused on aspiring to greatness, so it he that affected it. That blemished his tarnished his record. So, all right, fine. Um, okay. So she was banished from the home for the next three months. Nobody knew where Hannah was. She was nobody knew her. Enter John. Where was she, Alexis? Say it again. (laughs) Where was she? You know where she was. (laughs) Enter John R. Platt, a man in his 60s. He was hanging out with his friends in the Tenderloin District of Manhattan. It was the city's Mm -hmm. largest red light district. Shame. After he and his friends grew bored, they wanted to hit some coon joints. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Platt was a glass manufacturing he, he owned a glass manufacturing company in New York, and he lived in New York with his wife and their children. Platt and his friends went to the south side of the Tenderloin and went to the resort, quote. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There, mm-hmm. Platt met Hannah Elias, who introduced herself as Bessie. Elias was 19, but looked just past puberty. Platt was taken by Elias and would return several more times after their first encounter until one night he came and she was gone. Before Elias was jailed, she was dating somebody. His name was Frank Satterfield. And he was unfazed by her scandalous life. (laughs) He wanted to find her. Knowing she had been banned from the home, Satterfield enlisted the help of Elias' twin brother, David. And three months later, they found her living at the resort in New York's Tenderloin District. What a name. Mm -hmm. After initially declining to leave the resort, Satterfield and David eventually convinced Elias to leave. And she would leave with Satterfield and they would go to Philadelphia. When Satterfield and Elias moved to Philadelphia, she got pregnant. Satterfield was distraught by the news and he said, listen, I I can't do this with a child. I just can't support a child. Go get on welfare, please. Yes, go (laughs) and get some aid from the city. After giving birth, Satterfield skipped town on Elias. 
Elias Luck gave the child up for adoption. After she gave the baby up for adoption, she went looking for Satterfield and she found him living in New York. She found him living in New York. When she found him, she confronted him on his job. Okay. (laughs) At his place of employment, she caused a scene. Mm -hmm. She charged him up and she was thrown out of the (laughs) building, out of the store. Then she followed Satterfield home and then he called the police on the police on her and had her arrested. When it came time to go before the judge, Elias was like, look, Satterfield, he impregnated me and then he left me. That is Mm -hmm. a moral concern. Satterfield didn't even show up to the court date. Instead, he he sent sent a note note and (laughs) called her a common woman. Wink, wink. And the judge was like, oh, you're a prostitute. Get out. Exactly. Wow. He called her common. Mm. And he sent her to jail for 30 days. Yeah. 30 days. After 30 days, Elias was released and sought out John R. Platt. They had a system to locate each other if they lost track. And they would put in an ad in the paper and use their pet names. Like, hey... Popper, it's yeah. Bessie. Come find me here. So mm-hmm. they connected. Yeah. So she's been in jail a couple of times. She gets out and she's like, where is the white man that visited me when I worked at the resort? <laughs> <laughs> she's trying to survive. OK, so listen, Platt was living off Fifth Avenue near the Vanderbilts and the Carnegie's on Millionaire's Row. And he took home an annual salary of just under a million dollars. Just under a million dollars. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cha-ching. Because the govern- government was cracking down on big businesses and, and there were movements against the wealthy, Platt told Elias that their entanglement needed to be secret. But he would support her financially. Platt began writing her, uh, wiring her $2,000 to $6,000 a month. Now that is $58,000 to $175,000 a month. Wow. And he was like trying to help her invest it too. He was like, I can't leave you anything in my will for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And so I want you to have this money forever. So I'm going to show you how to invest it in real estate. Yep. Yep. So in 1890, Elias married Christopher Smith, a black railroad worker in his 20s. Did y'all hear this? She just casually got married to someone else. <laughs> Listen. Because she's just going to keep living her life She is also. living her life. After her uh-huh. marriage, the Platt engagement, excuse me, after her marriage, the Platt entanglement continued, okay? <laughs> Nothing changed. Nothing changed. Mm-hmm. When Platt's wife died, he wanted to commit himself to Elias. He also helped her go into business as a boarding house operator. And this would help her generate additional income and provide them with a meeting place. One evening, Platt showed up and met a tenant, Williams. Williams didn't like Platt. He kind of, he seemed to rub him the wrong way. So he sent him her away. Husband, yeah, he didn't, like, he didn't like the random white man showing oh, up no, to his house. Oh no, this is not the husband. His wife. This is just a house guest. Oh, I thought it was Cornelius Williams. Cornelius Williams is the one that turned him away, not the husband. Okay, okay. Crazy, right? He was like, Uh, oh, I don't like him. So go away, go away. And I ain't going to tell nobody you was here. So (laughs) Elias, for some reason or another, evicted Williams a couple weeks later. 
Eliza's husband right. was tired okay. of the Platt entanglement and she sued and he sued Platt for alienating the affections of his wife. Platt gave Smith, her husband, Eliza's husband, five hundred dollars, which amounts to seven thousand dollars today. He was like, fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> and he settled and they filed for a divorce. Then a lawyer blackmailed them about the entanglement. And after the divorce, Platt moved Elias into a mansion. <laughs> Elias was confined to this mansion because she lived in a white neighborhood and her neighbors didn't know she was black. She was like across the street from Central Park. Is that what that area is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So she had yeah. no friends. And told everyone she was Cecilia. Okay, <laughs> yeah, she was telling them everything <laughs> about herself. <laughs> she had no friends and all she could do was watch men and women go by in the park from the window. She would read and collect books and help the time pass. And one day she was reading and she realized, look, my life is just like Cleopatra's. <laughs> yes, that is my life. <laughs> so she decided... And here's why. They were both exiled by their family, only able to return with the help of an older man. So she decided to remake herself as Cleopatra. Her surroundings and everything. Everything would be Cleopatra. She would even hire a beauty doctor and try to fix her nose. And then just whatever beauty treatments were available to make her look um, more white so she can go out in public and engage. And... Um, yeah, she even paid for a mask that was supposed to just put on your skin and when you take it off, you're supposed to be white. And she paid somebody $1,000 to do that. And um, of course, that didn't change. And he skipped town with like all her monies and stuff. She had no friends other than Platt and could only watch men and women go by in the park from a seat in her window, never able to walk the promenades herself. She sought refuge in reading and collected books to help pass the time. One day... While reading about the Egyptian ruler Cleopatra, she had an epiphany. Similarities between their lives began to appear to her. As a girl, Cleopatra was exiled by her family. As a woman, she was able to return to rule through an alliance with a powerful older man, Rome's ruler Julius Caesar. Perhaps Elias thought if she remade herself and her surroundings in Cleopatra's image, her home would become a palace, not a prison. Elias charged her most trusted servant, a slight Japanese man with a thin mustache named Cato, with shopping for the items needed to transform the home. After a frenzy of effort, the walls and windows of the mansion were draped with satin and silk. The rooms were outfitted with perfumed pillows and chases for Elias to lie on while her servants fed and fanned her with feather fans. She had Cato purchase a fountain that spouted scented water and installed it in her bedroom after reading that Cleopatra had had such an apparatus. When she was bored, she would clap her hands and order her servants to put on Egyptian period costumes and dance for her. The pageant only minimally eased her malaise. She was the wealthy mistress of a powerful man, and with her investments and gifts from Platt, she was worth close to a million herself. Save for Mary Ellen Pleasant in California, she was most likely the richest black woman in the United States. Yet, 
because of her race, she could not even leave her home. She began to think that perhaps she could find freedom if she could make herself white. When I was first called upon by this woman, I was impressed by her desire to look as much like a white woman as possible recalled Dr. Edward P. Robinson, a beauty doctor Elias hired in 1900. When Robinson first met with Elias in her home, he told her that he couldn't change her tan complexion or her curly hair, but he could give her a new nose, noting that her nose was typically African as it was depressed at the bridge and spread all over her face. Robinson made eight house calls at $100 apiece to work on Elias. It's not known what treatments he performed, but it was popular at the time to use paraffin wax to create a structure on the inside of the nostrils to project the tip of the nose outward. Such a treatment could be effective but needed to be redone on the monthly basis and was known to cause difficulty breathing. Nonetheless, after the treatment, Elias's nose was more pronounced. Miss Elias now has a perfect type of Grecian nose, the beauty doctor boasted. After altering her nose, she searched for an expert to change her hair and hired a hairdresser who claimed she could make her locks straight. Elias was instructed to shave her head bald and apply an elixir to her scalp. The new hair, she was told, would grow in without kinks. However, when it started to grow again, it was as curly as before. Elias who was left nearly bald, was forced to don wigs after that. She consoled herself by purchasing hair pieces made of Spanish hair that cost upward of several hundred dollars each. She hoped she would have better results with her complexion. She found a man who claimed he could lighten her skin by applying a mask to her face for 30 days. When it was removed, he told her, her skin would be alabaster white. When she removed the mask, her skin color was unchanged. And by then, the salesman had skipped town with the $1,000 she had paid him. Now, remember that tenant Williams that she evicted because he didn't like the way, um, well, we don't know why he um, she evicted him, but he was acting funny when Platt came to the house. Okay, mm-hmm. return of him. Well, this guy returns with a vengeance. He is determined to take revenge on Elias. So apparently this had happened eight years before. And according to those that knew him, Williams had gone mad. And then after an eviction that happened a month earlier, something clicked and he was determined yes, to find Elias. When he yeah, couldn't he was find her, blame her for all his problems. Yeah, he blamed her for all the problems. When he couldn't find her, he figured, I'm going to find that man that came to the door. What was his name? Yes, Mr. Green. So he goes out looking for Mr. Green and he found a man named Andrew Green in the city of directory, went to his home and he shot Mr. Green. He shot him. And then when the police pulled shot up, him dead. Williams, he was like the comptroller or something of the city. Yeah. He was real random. When the police pulled up, Williams turned himself in. He told the police he killed Mr. Green because he was the lover of the woman that slandered him. Um, the man Williams killed was actually Andrew Green, the New York City planner. 
not mm-hmm. Elias's Mr. Green. So his family was like, listen, our father is not sleeping with no black lady. Stop it. These are all right. lies. This is a crazed Negro. Somebody get him. <laughs> this is a problem. Well, he was already in custody anyway, so... They decided, let's investigate what he's saying. So they eventually find Elias. And she's like, yeah, I have a um, an entanglement. Wait, the officers walk <laughs> into a mansion across the street from Central Park where everything inside is made to resemble uh, Egypt of Cleopatra's day. Um, Hannah is laid out like Cleopatra. Her servants doing little dances in Egyptian costumes. Not kidding. And she is like, yeah, I, got, I mean, I don't know nobody named Green. Maybe you're looking for my lover, Platt. He's paid for all of this. <laughs> That's who you're looking for. Go talk to him. Bye. Also, I'm Cecilia. <laughs> Woo, child. This story was amazing. Okay? It's a lot. Um, <laughs> my Why she got to have him dancing, though? <laughs> She that wanted the so whole. Wrong. She wanted the whole vibe. She wanted to the whole vibe. So the police, um, after they talked to Elias, they then go talk to Platt, and Platt said, "Yep, I did have a um, entanglement with her, but I need to keep it confidential." But the police shared it with his family. The family was mm-hmm. outraged. They was like, "You giving all our money to her? Stop mm-hmm. it! Their inheritance was at risk." So they forced Mister Platt to file a lawsuit against Elias. Miles was showing up at her house and she would be all up in her room laid out like Cleopatra eating grapes and whatnot. <laughs> they was throwing eggs and stuff at her <laughs> windows and she was like, servants, go see about the peasants. Yes. So the mobs were protesting outside her home. She had to go to court and when Mr. Platt was put on the stand, he wasn't a reliable witness. He responded, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> he was just looking at her and she was looking at him and he said, um, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know why this is happening. The, so he didn't, he, the, he didn't help the prosecution at all. So the charges were dismissed against Elias. Platt died in 1908 with $10,000 to his name, $270,000 today. And it seems he transferred the majority of his wealth to Elias during their entanglement. Elias boarded a ship and sailed across the ocean and disappeared. Likely living in France with her favorite butler, um, a a Japanese butler that she uh, acquired and confided in. I mean, it's a lot going on there. It's a lot going on here. (laughs) Now we get to the beauty queens. Annie Turnbull Malone. That sounds familiar. Yes. In the years after slavery ended, the black beauty industry was dominated by traveling salesmen and beauty companies that sold products to alter the appearance of African-American of African-Americans to make them look more white. Black skin removers, whitening pills, hair straighteners were advertised everywhere. Pamphlets, broadsides and flyers with the goal of helping with the air quotes Mm -hmm. black people to assimilate into white society the product sold well but it was snake oil because some black people believed that looking whiter would help them achieve greater self-esteem and social status it didn't that was well it was snake oil because it didn't work (laughs) yes it it was definitely snake oil because it didn't work but it's a fallacy yeah um so 
from as young as nine years old, Annie Turnbull was doing hair. She had a knack for it and wanted it to be her business. Annie was the 10th child of Isabel and Robert Turnbull. Both of the parents, the parents died when Annie was a toddler. She was raised by her older sister, Laura. One day, Annie's sister sent her to an herbalist. When Annie wandered around the woman's house, she asked if she had anything to grow hair. She gave her a concoction and Annie tried it on one of Sarah's friends who developed ball spots trying all the products from the traveling salesman. The friend returned days later. Her scalp started to heal and the ball spots were sprouting hair. Annie began to make her own elixir. Annie's reputation began to grow as one who could not only do hair, but the one who could help hair grow. As she read the labels on the hundreds of jars, they seemed to offer a cure for any ailment thinkable. Heartbreak, weight gain, teeth grinding. Suddenly, Annie remembered B and her hair loss problem. Do you have anything for hair? She asked. A plant that grows hair. No, the herbalist said, I have many. She took down three jars of herbs, sprinkled some of each into her mortar and crushed them. She then took down a thick, creamy yellow liquid and mixed some of it into the herbs. This is a hair elixir, she told Annie. Just take some of it and rub it into your scalp and let it sit for 30 minutes. She pushed the mixture toward Annie. Now that'll be a dye, she added. Annie took the mixture along with the herbs her sister had asked her to buy and headed home. The next time Bee came over, Annie told her about the concoction and asked if she could try it out on her. Bee agreed, and Annie applied the substance to her scalp. After a few days, Bee's skin started to heal. A few weeks after that, her hair started to grow back. Annie's health continued to improve that spring, but Sarah kept her out of school, fearing that she was too weak. Annie asked Bee to get her science books to study while she was out of school. Bee was grateful to Annie for curing her baldness and got her mother, who worked as a cleaning woman at the white school in Peoria, to borrow books from the school, which she gave to Annie. Throughout her childhood, Annie read anything about chemistry, biology, and hygiene she could get her hands on, hoping she could learn something about hair. One day, she came across a text on dairy farmers' use of ointments to treat the skin of cow's udders. After reading about the ointments, she went into town, purchased a cow ointment from the drugstore, took it home, and mixed in various hair-growing herbs from the herbalist. She tried the ointment on a stray cat she found suffering from mange. The solution seemed to help regrow some of the animal's hair after a few applications. She decided it was time to try it on a person. She tried her concoction on one of Sarah's friends, who had tried to straighten her hair with lye soap and burned her scalp. She had bald patches all over her head where she had scalded herself with the straightening substance. When the friend came to Annie, she washed her head, then applied her new solution of ointment and herbs. After she was done, the friend asked her how long it would take for her hair to start growing again. I don't know, Annie replied. You're my first human experiment. The friend returned a few days later to show Annie that the patches that had been bald were now sprouting hair. The solution had worked. Annie had invented her own hair elixir. Next, Annie began to make her own elixir by copying the ingredients used in cow ointment, petroleum, sulfur, and lanolin or beeswax. Over the next 10 years, she continued to treat women in Peoria, using them as test subjects to perfect her solution. 
tweaking its ingredients and their proportions. The sulfur removed damaged tissue and the petroleum and beeswax helped heal chemical burns and moisten the skin. She added herbs she learned about from the herbalists that were purported to grow hair faster. She named her invention the Wonderful Hair Grower. Annie created the Wonderful Hair Grower. Through her teenage years and early 20s, Annie focused on her craft. She wouldn't go to social gatherings. She wasn't having no boyfriends. Although she did get married, she didn't have any boyfriends. By her 13th birthday in 1899, she had more than 200 clients, but she wasn't making much money. So she needed a plan. She decided she needed a larger customer base. So her and her sister, Sarah, moved to Lovejoy, Illinois and rented an office for $5. (laughs) And that's like $146 a month. Mm -hmm. Then she took her products to the people and started lecturing women on the importance of proper hygiene and hair care. After the lecture, she'd do one of the women's hair free of charge. Then one day, a teenage girl came into her shop and told Annie that she wanted to look like a Gibson girl. Now, a Gibson girl was a white woman with hair tousled and pinned up on her hair. Annie told her, I wouldn't want I wouldn't do that if I could do it. Look like you don't try to look like them. (laughs) Exactly. That's what Annie told her. Yeah, Annie. Um, She would later hire this young lady to start selling the product. So this would be her way of connecting with the locals. So a local teenager who used the product, she could go out and be her messenger and give a testimony, a personal testimony on what the um, product did for her. Then she would learn of the 1903 World's Fair in St. Louis. And actually, the young teenage girl told her about it. So Annie decided to move to St. Louis to try to capitalize on the excitement of the fair. After moving to St. Louis, she met Sarah Breedlove. Do you know who that is, Kyrie? That sounds really familiar. Is that Madam C.J. Walker? Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes. So Sarah Breedlove was a widow and a mother who had immigrated from Louisiana to St. Louis. One of the first things she noticed about Sarah was her hair. It was short and matted. And Annie convinced Sarah to allow her to come in and shampoo her hair. And after the service, Annie offered Sarah a job. Sarah would sell Annie's products. And not only did they help her hair grow back, she would be able to make more money than she did as a laundress. Yeah, Madam C.J. Walker would. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After accepting Annie's offer, Sarah would become Annie's best saleswoman in the region. So she was making Annie money, money, money. Mm-hmm. Annie used the World Fair to pitch selling her products to black tourists from all over, taking her company from regional to global. Shortly after the fair, Sarah Breedlove met with Annie to tell her that she was going to relocate to Denver, Colorado. She offered to sell Annie's products there. Bree Love and her daughter moved to Denver and began selling the products in the new city and working as a part-time laundress. So she would sell the hair products and do, you know, some backup work. After months, after a few months into her move, her boyfriend, you know, the boyfriend came and followed her and mm-hmm. got up with her in Denver. 
And what he suggested, because he was a traveling salesman. Yeah, his name was DJ Walker. This is where Sarah eventually gets her name. That's right. This is Charles James or CJ Walker. He decided, well, excuse me, he convinced his new wife that she should stop selling Annie's products and they should start their own line. Annie hadn't trademarked the, the formula, so she was powerless to stop the copycatting. Yeah. By 1912, though, Annie Turnbull was making nearly a million dollars a year. Annie would soon meet Aaron Malone, a traveling Bible salesman. They became engaged and married in 1914. And by the time of their marriage, Annie was worth between $1.5 million and $3 million. Today's dollars, 36 to $72 million. Whoa. Yeah. She had over 4,000 agents in 46 states, as well as in the Caribbean, West Africa, and the Philippines. After her marriage, Annie put all her assets, including the house and both in both um, Aaron's name, her husband's name, and her name. And she made Aaron, her husband, the CEO of Poro. Between 1919 and, and 1920, Poro did more than $3 million um, in sales, which amounts to $36 million today. Annie became overly concerned with showing off her wealth and she began to get frustrated because she didn't feel appreciated for the things or not appreciated. She didn't feel like she was getting the recognition that she Yeah, because got. Madam C.J. Walker was known for showing off her what she earned and she'd write these checks for relatively small amounts to charities. But she had friends in the journal in um, she had reporter friends, especially one big journalist at the time. And so they would triumph her small donations. And so um, Anne was like, well, I'm donating too. And I'm donating more, but ain't nobody talking about it. I'm giving. Yeah. I'm a philanthropist. Yeah. Yeah. And that truly led to her um, a breakdown because of that frustration associated with not being um, given recognition. She would um, berate her employees, her husband. They would fight loudly in public. And in 1926, her husband filed for divorce and sought half of her empire. In the end, after a costly battle, she was forced to give Aaron $200,000. That is $2.7 million today. That was the beginning of her financial troubles as she spent the next decade trying to spin her way to relevance. Her out-of-control spending forced her to default on taxes and the IRS put liens on her assets. She died at the age of 87. And in May of 1952, she was eulogized as Madam C.J. Walker's mentor. <laughs> so still in the shadow, in a way, of C.J. Yeah. Walker. Yeah, and even though she ultimately had more financial success yes, than Madam C.J. Walker, absolutely. she still um, remained in her shadow. We say Madam C.J. Walker, and we're told Madam C.J. Walker was the first Black self-made millionaire. Or no Black, just the first ever self-made millionaire, right? I think it's the first Black. Or female. Something. It's first something, though. <laughs> I, I, it's just for out. something. But anyway, they say she was identified as such because she was the loudest with it. Yeah, she, she showed it off more. Yeah, everybody else was kind of low key Discreet. about their yeah. um, riches. 
for mm-hmm. their successes, but she was boasting. She was building and she didn't have no shame. She was spending money even up to her death. She was spending money on she diamond rings. She was not yet a millionaire. Like, she was still short when she died. Yeah. Yeah. But even to her death, she was spending big dollars on big things, knowing that knowing the money was coming. Yeah. But, you know, we did cover Madam C.J. Walker, so I'm only going to talk a little bit about her. Um, And that is in our self-made episode. (laughs) Yes. In um, 1906, when Walker left Denver and landed in Indianapolis in 1910, Madam's business was making a little over 10,000 a year selling products through the mail and franchising um, beauty salons. Her business was struggling and Mr. Walker was the problem because he was failing to fulfill orders. He came up with products that nobody would buy and he mismanaged the money. So Madam CJ Walker sent him away. Oh, also he was a drunk and a flirt and he would flirt openly with people. So he was problematic. Okay. (laughs) So she sent him out on the road to kind of drum up business. And while he was gone, she restructured her whole business. She decided that the only way to beat any Turnbull was to turn was through marketing and branding. And Madam bought Madam sought out Booker T. Washington, the most famous black person in America, in an effort to get him to endorse her product and make um and then she knew for sure if she got his endorsement, she would shoot to the top. And he was and that, famous, but he was also head of like a business league. Yes, um, that yes. she wanted the backing of. Yeah, for yes. many reasons. And that endorsement wouldn't come easy. Right. Uh, Washington actually despised black hair care products because all he saw in them is that they were trying to make black women black women look white, and he didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And so she wrote to him. She showed up at events. Yeah, this is all in self-made, <laughs> but, it, you know, it's there. It's there. She invited him to stay up at her home and kind of showed him like, I am successful. Look what I've accomplished. And for some reason, he saw that and he was like, well, you know, you're not so bad after all. Because I need you some might money can... for one of my causes. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. can contribute to one of my causes. And she said, and oh, so... yeah, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money for this charity. What you need? I'll give you double. And then she got home and sent him a check for like $30 and was like, listen, I ain't even going to hold you. But a lot of your um, benefactors, see, they giving as they've already accumulated their wealth. You know, I'm poor and black. I'm just trying out here. So I'll give you more when I got it. She was good. She was good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was uh, an outstanding piece that I I saw in this book that I I didn't really notice. I mean, I probably was in there. Yeah, I talked about it in Self Made, too. Yeah, just, you know, didn't probably include it. Maybe I did. I don't know. Scratch this. OK, just scratch it. I'm I'm tired of talking about it. Anyway, he stayed at her home. She loved it. Um, he saw her as a potential donor. And in 1912, the Walkers divorced. Mr. Walker then marries Dora Larry, one of Madam's hired saleswomen. Dora wanted to be. Madam C.J. Walker. She wanted the name. And Mr. Walker talked her into, let's do a business. We can take it and we could be greater than Madam. Ah, That did not happen. That was a (laughs) big fail. He would, Mr. Walker would later go on to try to get back with Madam until the day she died. um, Always trying to get um, back with her or back into her good graces. Yeah. 
And she died May of 1919. And after her death, her accountant took over. And from 1919 to 1920, he brought in a million dollars because the business was still viable. That's the end. Okay. Let's take a quick break. Sounds good. We discussed Black Fortunes. What's your final thought and would you recommend this book? I'm going to start with some criticism that I saw on Goodreads. um, And it wasn't about the book's structure. It was more about the editing. I guess there are some um, references maybe to West Virginia at a time when West Virginia didn't exist. I think Lincoln's um, vice president is called Andrew Jackson in the book. Uh, when Andrew Johnson was truly uh, Lincoln's President Lincoln's vice president. Little things like that. Now that I've said that, I will say that none of that ruined this book for me. Also, I took in this book in one sitting via audio. And I think that also helped because the structure jumps from individual to individual, similar to The Warmth of Other Suns, a book we love very much. For yep. me, this was like the prequel to Warmth of Other Suns. You could get uh, okay. a little um, mini lesson in black history by starting here, which catches you up from slavery to that first generation uh, that was free. And then you could go on to Jim Crow and the Great Migration and the warmth of other sons. So I really enjoyed these stories, these true stories. I enjoyed um, taking this book in and I would definitely read it again and recommend it. Um, the Any gripes I had, I don't even remember them. So uh yeah for me it was the the story jumping from story to story made it more entertaining I liked that because it would leave you on a cliffhanger like oh what's gonna happen to so-and-so I liked that so I like the structure of the book I think Shamari did a great job and I would read it again what about you yeah I I noticed those same things that the um that were on Goodreads I didn't know they were on Goodreads but I did notice some of those things oh you noticed them on your own yeah, they were a little distracting, but um, I like you said, I, I, I got over it. More than um, the state and the vice president reference. Did you notice anything else? Yeah, I felt like some some dates were um, uh, were wrong. Were, I, I don't know the way the way they were listed. I was like, you could have wrote that differently. So, so this reminds me of a complete work that's handed to an editor that's being shopped around. Someone buys it and edits it and publishes it as opposed to a work. That's um, like the skeletons written. Someone buys it, a publishing house buys it, and then you edit it as you go. So I think the editor perhaps got a complete work and did not take their time going through it. And that's the editor's fault. That is not the author's fault. Authors make mistakes. That's fine. The editor is supposed to catch that. Okay. Yeah, I can appreciate that. But what I um, enjoyed is going back and having those little bitty details. There was an, an interesting story told about Jeremiah Hamilton. He was New York's richest black man. I like seeing the stories intertwined. A lot of these people knew a lot of these people. Yeah. They were, um, they all knew um, um, Frederick Douglass. They all knew W.E.B. Du Bois. So we would hear about the same uh, individuals in each of their stories at some point. Everybody in Greenwood was affected by Madam C.J. Walker's death. 
and um, with a couple others. Um, oh, like with Robert Reed Church, people knew about his death and another storytelling. So I really liked having the story intertwined that way. Um, you could pick it up here and then at, this is also going on at the same time. I always like to know what's happening at the same time. And this book provided that for me. Mm-hmm. It was really great to read. I would definitely recommend it. I'm glad I picked it up and um, walked across it. One thing uh, you mentioned, Jeremiah Hamilton, who was like the only black millionaire in, in New York at a certain time. Uh, his wife's name was Eliza. And I just <laughs> yeah. thought that was weird. Yeah, it was. It was. This is like, I was like, did they say his name was Alexander? What is his, what is his name? What book am I reading again? Who is this? Yeah, yeah, Jeremiah Hamilton had a wife named Eliza Hamilton. She was 15 years younger than him and, and white. And she was white, uh-huh, which yeah. was very taboo at the time. But he her would name shave was his hair and yeah. wear a black straight wig. I mean, he has some identity issues. What? Yeah. But they also called him Prince of Darkness. All right. Well, thank you, Alexis. <laughs> On that note, uh, th- uh, thank you for choosing Black <laughs> Fortunes. Thank you, Alexis, for choosing this week's book, Black Fortunes. What are we reading next week, girl? The Meaning of Mariah Carey by Mariah Carey and Michelle Angela Davis. Awesome. <laughs> Who did I say? Mahalia Jackson. Something like that. You don't even know. Uh (laughs) Cannot wait. Nope. It's going to be great. Nope. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Wait till the next week. It's going to be full of singing. Uh. And that's our last book of the year. We are taking December off. The rest of November and December. Yes. Yes. So please join us for our final book. It's going to be a little celebration of the show. Uh, We're going to have some fun next week. And thank you for listening to Lit Society today. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Sanaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love you. We love you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, tell a friend about Lit Society. Also, check out our booktube on YouTube by uh, searching Lit Society Podcast on YouTube. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, (laughs) read read something. something.